Today we'll be in Matthew 1, starting in verse 2, going through the genealogy, going through Jesus' birth, the miraculous, unique birth of our Lord and Savior. And today I think we're going to look and see how Jesus is holy, how He is God, He is Savior, and He is King to all nations. So while you're turning to Matthew 1, I want to tell you a little bit about Joanne Shetler. Joanne spent many years in the Philippines with the uh, Balongo people, translating the Bible into their language and telling them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one day, while she was working on the Bible translation, she had her English Bible open to Matthew 1, and a man from the village came, his name was Ama, and he looked over the English Bible, and he could understand a little bit of English, and he asked, uh, Joanne, is this a genealogy in Matthew? And she said, yes, it is, but you can, you know, skip over that and get to the good stuff. But um, I was like, no, this is important. This is good. If this is a genealogy, this means that Jesus' story is actually real. It's happened in history. And that was really important for Amma and the Balongo people for it to be rooted in history. And it's important for us to see that Jesus is not just some fairy tale. Matthew's Gospel is not a fairy tale that opens with once upon a time. But it opens with the historical, real, genealogical tracing of King Jesus. And so from this genealogy and Jesus' birth... I want us to see four main things. First, Jesus is holy, worthy of worship, and He is for all the nations. Number two, Jesus is the King. Number three, Jesus is God incarnate who fulfills Old Testament prophecy. And number four, Jesus is the Savior of His people. So number one, as we'll see, as we'll, you'll read through Matthew's genealogy, some names will stick out to you more than others, such as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Many in Jesus' lineage have rich Old Testament history. You can read many chapters about them that depict their faithfulness and righteousness of following God. But some people, like verse 13, we have people like Azor, Zadok, Achim. They're not even mentioned in the Old Testament. We don't know anything about them. Matthew probably retrieved these names from the public archives. The Jewish people at that time were well known for their accurate record keeping. Then there were some in Jesus' genealogy that did evil in the eyes of the Lord, such as Ahaz, mentioned in Matthew 1.9. For Ahaz was an evil king. He reigned for 16 years, promoted idolatry, evil practices, you can read all about him in 2 Kings 16. So in, in King Jesus' genealogy, we have people who were righteous and faithful, people we can learn from, like Abraham. We also have people we don't know much about at all. And we also have people who did evil things, very evil things. But even if you look at people like Abraham and David, who give us many examples of faith, they fell away and they fell short of perfection. They were not obedient to God 100% of the time. For example, look in Matthew 1.6. Jesse fathered King David. David 
fathered Solomon by the wife of Uriah. You notice that? Father of Solomon by who? Not his wife, by somebody else's wife. King David is being pointed out here as you can see his sinful actions even in the genealogy. David took Uriah's wife Bathsheba and then sent Uriah to the front lines of battle and then in order that Uriah would be killed. David speaks of this in Psalm 51.4. Psalm 51.4, David says to God, Against you, against God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. David laments of his sin and recognizes that he ultimately sinned against God. He sinned against Uriah, he sinned against Bathsheba, but it was ultimately against God. God is just judge. He will declare the sentence as true. David recognizes his sinful nature from birth, even, which is true of all humanity, except for one. The one brought into the world by the Holy Spirit, Jesus. The Holy One came to die in the place of sinners. For Jesus to take away sin, He had to be the spotless Lamb. So unlike us, unlike everyone before us, unlike people in Jesus' genealogy, Jesus was sinless. He was holy. He was perfectly obedient. And also unlike those mentioned in the genealogy, who we know little about, Jesus' name is to be lifted up and proclaimed to all. Look at Philippians 2, 8 through 11. Philippians 2, 8 depicts the obedience and the exaltation of Jesus in this way. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So while we are adopted into God's family through faith, we are not to exalt ourselves or anyone else, but we are to exalt our Savior and King. For it is His name that is above every name. Another interesting feature in Jesus' genealogy is that Matthew mentions four mothers, four women, Tamar in verse 3, Rahab and Ruth in verse 5, and Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, in verse 6. Why does he mention these? Well, they have something in common. They would be considered non-Israelites. They would be considered foreigners, representative of the nations. So Tamar, she can be found in Genesis 38. She was probably a Canaanite. Rahab, also a Canaanite. She's in Joshua 2. She assisted the Israelite spies in Jericho. Ruth was from Moab. And Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, would be considered a Hittite because her husband, Uriah, was a Hittite. This is why Matthew probably refers to her as Uriah's wife, to emphasize her husband's foreign nationality. So the fact that all of these foremothers would have been considered foreigners 
emphasizes Jesus' role to bring blessing and his kingdom to all nations. This inclusion of the nations in Jesus' genealogy also depicts how God cares for the nations and uses people from all nations to bring about his plan of redemption through Jesus. So we can praise the Lord for his grace and his mercy that extends to all people. And we should be imitators of our God. We should seek to befriend and invite and tell all people about our King Jesus and include them with us in worship in the kingdom of God. For God created all people in his image and desires people of all nations to praise and glorify him. Pray and ask God for opportunities for how our church can reach the nations. And then how you specifically can be involved in building God's kingdom. One way every single one of us can be involved is through prayer. Someone once said, many of us cannot reach the mission fields on our feet, but we can reach them on our knees. Solid, lasting missionary work is accomplished by prayer. As Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 9, 37, he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. May we, may we be a church of prayer. May we send out workers from our congregation to the nations. And the nations in America, especially today, have come to us. Let us not forsake spreading Jesus' gospel to everyone. Matthew also wants to point out something else about Jesus' genealogy. Look at Matthew 1.17. 1.17. He points out that from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, until the Christ, 14 generations. Why does Matthew break these up into 14, 14, 14? Just as we saw last week, the title of Jesus as the Christ depicts him as the king of Israel and the world. Matthew is again emphasizing Jesus' kingship with the number 14. And David is represented as the king in Matthew 1.6. So even though there are many other people who were also kings in Jesus' genealogy, David is specifically mentioned as the king here. So Matthew, because in Jesus' time, the number 14 could represent the name David. So let me give you an illustration. It's a little different than what happened in, in, in his time. But today we have, say, numbers on jerseys, on sports teams. So, for example, if I were to mention the number 23, while talking about the history, maybe of just basketball, you might already be thinking of somebody. But even if I was talking about the history of the Chicago Bulls, Number 23, even if you just Googled the number 23 basketball, Michael Jordan is the first to pop up, right? So when Matthew points out the number 14, 14, 14, when talking about the history of Israel, everyone would know he was alluding to King David. And as one commentator notes, how Matthew is again highlight, highlighting that Jesus is the promised son of David, who would fulfill God's covenant with David, 
by reigning over his people forever and ever. Today, will you believe and submit to Jesus' kingship? What aspect of your, of your life are you unwilling to submit to, to the one true king? Let today be the day that you bow down and lift up the name of Jesus as your king. The next, the next aspect about King Jesus' genealogy and birth we will look at is the unique and miraculous nature of his birth. Throughout the genealogy, we have Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah, so on and so on for 41 generations. And we have a father and a son, father, son. But on the last generation, Matthew 1.16 we don't, we don't have Joseph fathered Jesus. No, we have Mary gave birth to Jesus. For Jesus was not like any other person before him or ever since. For Jesus had no biological father. Jo- Joseph was not the biological father in Matthew 1.16, but he's described as the husband of Mary. How is this possible? Well, Matthew tells us, starting in Matthew 1.18, The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. Thus, it is possible for Jesus to be born without a biological father because the Holy Spirit brought about this unique and miraculous conception. This is the first of many miracles in Matthew's Gospel. And some have said, that only after Jesus' resurrection, this is the most debated and controversial event of Jesus' life, the virgin birth. So this unique and miraculous conception was foretold in the Old Testament. Look at Matthew 1.22. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Matthew 1.23. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. God is with us. This prophecy is from Isaiah 7.14. Thus, one of the reasons God chose for Jesus to be born of a virgin is so that it would be a fulfillment of Scripture, a sign to God's people that Jesus truly is the Messiah, the Christ, the Promised One, the Son of David. For Isaiah 7.14 explicitly states that the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. So don't miss the sign. Don't miss the sign promised long ago. And not only is Jesus the King, but He is God in the flesh. For He will be called Emmanuel, which means God in is with us. As Colossians 2.9 says, For in Him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness of deity. So here in Matthew 1.23, Jesus is being depicted as God Himself. Thus, when Jesus came to earth, God came to earth. Look also at Matthew 1.21. When the angel tells Joseph that Mary will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. 
One commentator points out that the name Jesus is the Greek version of Joshua. Joshua in Hebrew means Yahweh saves. So therefore, the name is appropriate because Jesus is the incarnation of Yahweh. Jesus then is God himself coming to save his people. And what is Jesus coming to save his people from? One commentator points out the verb save in Matthew can refer to deliverance of physical danger, Matthew 8.25, disease in Matthew 9.21, or even death, Matthew 24.22. But here in Matthew 1.21, it focuses on what is central, salvation from sins. For in the biblical perspective, sin is at the center. Sin is at the, the, the center of everything else that is wrong with the world and bad things that happen. Sometimes there are direct consequences of our sin in our lifetime. Sometimes there are calamities that have nothing to do with our own personal sin, but someone else's sin against us. And sometimes bad things happen because the world itself is fallen, and we are waiting for Jesus to come back to make all things right. Matthew will show us that Jesus came ultimately at the center of everything is that Jesus came to save his people by offering forgiveness for their sins. Jesus did not come to save them from their oppressor, Rome, their national political oppressor of Rome, which was some people's expectation of the Messiah. Instead, Jesus came to save his people from their sins by his sacrificial death on the cross. Look at Matthew 26, 28. Matthew 26, 28. For this is my blood, Jesus says. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Thus, Jesus came to save us, not with a sword, not with an army, but by dying the death we deserved. Now flip another page over, Matthew 27, 42. 27, 42. When Jesus was on the cross, the people mocked him, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let me read that again. He said, They said, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. You sense the irony in that? Remember last week, Matthew 26, 68, the people mocked him, saying, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who was it that hit you? It's ironic because Matthew was actually a prophet. He prophesied that he would suffer. So, in 2742, when the people said, He saved others, He cannot save Himself. It's not that Jesus can't save Himself. It's because He wants to save others that He gives up His own life. For by His blood, we are saved. So in other words, they should have said, to save others, he will not save himself. Now look back at Matthew one twenty one. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people, his people from their sins. Now who are his people? You might think that his people are Israel. You look at the genealogy. He's descendant from Abraham. But many people of his people, of Israel, in his time, rejected him as their king. 
And like we saw, God includes the nations in the genealogy with the four mothers, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. And also the emphasis on Jesus as the son of Abraham even emphasizes that he is the one who brings blessing to the nations. Genesis 22:18. Additionally, throughout Matthew, we will see that non-Israelites exhibit faith in Jesus. For example, how Jesus heals the son of the Roman centurion, Matthew 8, 5. The daughter of the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, 21. And about the centurion, Jesus explicitly says, I have not found such faith even among Israel. So Jesus' people, His people, are not determined by their genealogy. It does not matter who your family is or who your parents are or where you came from. Anyone can be His people through faith in Him as their God, Savior, and King. So Jesus, who is God Himself, provides the only way of salvation. For even in His very name, Jesus declares the central truth of Christianity that Yahweh saves. God saves. We cannot save ourselves. You can't do enough good works to save yourself. You can't do enough good works, good things to earn your forgiveness. Forgiveness only comes through Jesus' blood, through Jesus' death, and trusting in Him as your God, Savior, and King. And not only does God bring salvation from sin, He provides His helping presence, for Jesus is God with us. And Matthew closes his gospel in the same way. Matthew 28, 20. Jesus says, "...in teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age." Jesus is with us. Thus we see that Matthew begins and ends his book with the abiding presence of God. So in sum, we saw that Jesus was holy. He is worthy of worship in Philippians 2. He's perfectly obedient. He is for all the nations. We saw that Jesus is the King. 14, 14, 14. Son of David, King. Jesus is God Himself, God with us. And He was born of a virgin, the unique and miraculous nature which fulfills Old Testament prophecy. And lastly, we saw that Jesus is the Savior of His people. He brings salvation from sin. Because Jesus is all these things, Again, we see people like Joanne who spent many years in the Philippines translating the Bible into their language, telling them the good news of our Savior. For Jesus is God. He is the Savior. He is the King of all nations. Let us learn from her example and seek to live our lives in light of these truths every day.